Let me begin by reading again the text before us. As it will cause us to do some, some thinking this morning. So 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. For starters, let me give you what is clear in this text, because we'll spend some time addressing what is, in our minds, less clear. You would be helped by taking verses 18 and 22 and letting them serve as the anchor of our text. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He died, he was raised in the spirit, and then verse 22, he has gone into heaven, he is seated on a throne, and he's Lord over all. Uh, that anchors the paragraph. And whatever's in between goes along with that storyline. Uh, so if in the course of the next half hour you find some things are still a little foggy, then keep reading the text this week and realizing Christ came accomplished redemption, and Christ is enthroned as Lord now, and that can do something for us as pilgrims. That can, that can encourage us. So don't feel you must understand everything this morning, but understand at the very least what is completely clear, that Christ has accomplished our salvation and is still reigning over all. Here's our big idea as we study the text specifically. Though you may suffer for doing good, Christ will lead you safely home. We sang of it, Christ is mine forevermore. We're awaiting the fullness of joy in his presence. Mine are the keys. I, I have entrance to that heavenly home. But now, in this life, even though we may suffer, we have that confidence that Christ will lead us safely home home. Keep that theme in mind as we try to make sense of the rest of the paragraph. It's there on your handout, so you can look at it. When you start getting a little lost in the weeds, perhaps, uh, come back to our theme. Though we may suffer for doing good, Christ will lead us safely home. Now, admittedly, there are some tough questions that arise from the text. Who are these spirits in prison? What was preached to them? Why the talk of Noah and the flood? And of course, how does baptism save you? Well, our right interpretation will begin with our text seated in a context. So what is the flow of thought before this paragraph and coming into this paragraph? You see, Peter is not starting a new section about mysterious spirits in prison. Peter is not randomly thinking of Noah in the flood. This is not a discourse on baptism. Rather, the context reveals that these ideas are a continuation from the last paragraph. The key word that begins our text in verse 18 is the word for which means it is just an extended explanation of what we were just told. Last week, we studied the previous verses, beginning in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can ultimately harm us? The answer is no one. However, verse 14, even if in this life you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So don't have fear of that trouble. Don't, don't let it unsettle you, but rather be ready to offer a defense for the hope that is in you as you suffer for doing good. Do that well, not with anger or judgment or retaliation, but do it in a way that you have a clear conscience before God. Conclusion, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So that's what we need to hear in our minds as we go into this next paragraph. It is better to suffer for doing good. And then the next verse begins with a reason why. For Christ also suffered, we could say, for doing good. And the good unfolds there as the plan of redemption. So it is better to suffer for doing good. Do we really believe that? That it's better, or the text said earlier, that we're blessed when we suffer for doing good. If there's any doubt, this next paragraph is designed to help us understand some kind of explanation for that statement. That it's, it's okay, it's good, it's better to suffer for doing good than to be on the other side of the cross and be the enemy of God, an evildoer. Better to be a do-gooder and be on the Lord's side than to be the evildoer. And now the explanation, which is ultimately, though you may suffer for doing good, Christ will lead you all the way home. So in these challenging verses, let me show you how three reflections that Peter offers in verses 18 to 22 actually help us to understand this big idea. Christ will lead us all the way home, even if that means for now a little bit of suffering for doing good. The first reflection Peter offers is the purpose of Christ. It is better to suffer for doing good. Explanation, because Christ also suffered. The also meaning, yes, you're suffering for doing good, but Christ also suffered for doing good. We saw that in the previous chapter, an extended paragraph at the end of chapter 2 where we're called to follow in the steps of Christ's suffering. Philippians says we can, we can fill up the sufferings of Christ. It's not that they were insufficient, it's just that our suffering, if it's linked to living rightly, living for Christ, is adding to, completing his suffering. So immediately we identify with Christ who also suffered for doing good. So yes, we see the argument, it really is better to suffer for doing good than to be an evildoer because that means we are suffering in Christ and for Christ. If you suffer for doing good, if you take a little bit of heat in the workplace, if you have family that will scorn what you believe, take heart. Christ knows that suffering not because he's omniscient alone, but because he also suffered that way. You are sharing in his suffering. But what is the purpose of his suffering? Verse 18 is clear. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and here's the explanation, so that he might bring us to God. Peter now is pausing for some gospel talk. Some, a, a little bit, of, little bit of pause here to make sure that once again these pilgrims hear that good news. Because they're surrounded by hostility, the, the, the reviling, the slandering that Peter has mentioned, the persecution is on the horizon and they're starting to be a little unsettled. He told him that in the last verse, don't let this trouble you. But admittedly, we kind of know that it, it happens. 
We don't like that feeling of being the minority in the workplace, of being the Christian, of being the the holier-than-thou one. We immediately are troubled. But take heart. Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. The purpose of Christ's coming was to bring us to God, and we need to hear that gospel again and again. There's good news being told here. Bringing us to God means we're being restored to what has been lost for thousands of years, all the way back to Eden. That's where we saw this picture of fellowship with God. The language of Genesis is God walked with them in the cool of the day. And then they took of the fruit of the tree that was forbidden and they hid themselves from God. They were trying to get away from God. They couldn't stand in his presence And so it was that God judges their sin, the curse is pronounced, they're driven from the garden, the cherubim with the flaming sword is there so that they would know with a visual representation, there is no way back to God. You do not earn your way back into a righteous standing with God. It cannot be done. So verse 18 is unfolding for us the gospel in this language of Christ coming and bringing us to God. This word for bringing someone to is this idea of of introducing them to to an esteemed person. So if you had your grandmother or some dear friend, a guest visit you at the church, you would want maybe your friend here, some people in your group or something, to meet them, and you would bring them and say, this is my grandma, this is my lifelong friend. You bring them to that person. You're the one who kind of makes the connection, makes it possible. Here that connection is one that involves holiness because the great question for humanity is how can sinful man be made right with a holy God? And the answer that Peter says in these these words is, Christ came to bring us to God. Now, how does he do this? Well, the text points to his substitutionary life. I know we often think of the substitutionary atonement of Christ being his death, but the reality is his righteous life is as much a substitution as is his death and resurrection. We need the righteousness that Christ has, and that's the great transaction of our faith, according to 2 Corinthians 5. God made Christ to be sin for us, though he knew no sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of Christ. He takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. Peter highlights it this way. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, if your faith is in Christ, you will not suffer for your unrighteousness. Or as Paul said, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not be punished for the sin you committed. Because Christ came to suffer the righteous for the unrighteous. He was righteous, clearly. That's the substitutionary life of Christ which introduces us to the hope of encountering God. But Peter also references his substitutionary death. First, in the veiled language of suffering, Christ also suffered once for sin. And that once reminds us, this is the language of Hebrews. A once for all, not just pain and suffering, but a once for all death, a sacrifice. Because when you read Hebrews, the once sacrifice is always in contrast to the repeated sacrifice of the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, well into the millions of animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament era to remind them again and again of the cleansing that comes only by innocent blood being shed for the guilty. He suffered, and then the text goes on to say he was put to death. This is the substitutionary death of Christ. 
which reminds us that we will not die eternally for our sin. Though indeed the wages of sin is death, those wages were paid out. That paycheck was signed and delivered, it's just that it wasn't handed to you. It was handed to Jesus Christ. He bore those wages so that we could go free. And then we see the substitutionary resurrection of Christ. When our text says he was made alive in the spirit. So all of this done by Christ, the righteous living, the dying for sin, living to eternal life, that was all accomplished by the work of Christ in our place. And so by faith, we say, I live in Christ, a law-keeping righteous life. By faith, I die in Christ. By faith, I live in Christ. It's true now, by faith in him, and it will be true for all eternity. So because the gospel is true, because Christ came to unfold redemption's plan, to bring us to God, or as Hebrews says, to bring many sons to glory, because that gospel is true, you can be confident that even though you may suffer for doing good in this life, Christ will lead you all the way home. That's his purpose in coming. In this language of this paragraph, he came to bring you to God. So do you think Christ will fail in his mission? And if you have any faith in what God has revealed in his word, the answer must be, well, no, I, 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 I cannot doubt that. And if the devil tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, then look up and see him there who made an end of all your sin. He came to suffer in order to bring you to God and he will not fail. So Peter's point is, yes, it is better to suffer for doing good than to be an evildoer. Because Christ came and he suffered too, but his suffering was designed to bring you safely home. And he will not fail. So Peter's first reflection is, stop and look at the purpose of Christ. And when you see why he came, to bring you back into fellowship with God, then you'll have confidence in our big idea that even though I might suffer for doing good, though I might face some hostility and opposition, I can know he's going to be successful. He's going to bring me safely home. Our text continues then with the illustration of Noah. So think about it. If you were asked to name a Bible example of someone who lived like a pilgrim, like an exile, somebody who was in the vast minority, but was so because of his righteousness, someone who just kept on doing good year after year, and someone who was led safely all the way home, Noah would be a pretty good example. Verse 18 finishes by telling us that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And in the spirit, he went and proclaimed, the word is preached, proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. In short, Christ in the spirit preached to those who did not obey in the days of Noah. So notice the time stamps. There's a number of them. Formerly, it says, they formerly did not obey. When was that? Well, back when God's patience waited. Well, when was that? Well, in the days of Noah. Well, what are you talking about? When he was preparing the ark. So we've got a 120-year time frame where this exile, this, this vast minority of Noah and his family lived righteously and proclaimed the truth. 
and it was not obeyed. So there's the timestamp. We're talking about the days of Noah when righteousness was announced by the minority, and even though it faced hostility and opposition, they just kept being faithful because, after all, what's the point of our passage? It's better to suffer for doing good than to be evil. Well, the confusion comes in this description of these spirits being in prison. So the souls of the people that Peter is talking about are in a place of punishment at the time of Peter's writing. He's saying their spirits are in prison. That's the, the, the status quo. That's the way it is right now. Obviously, the people that were alive in Noah's day that rejected the message of the gospel are not alive today. Their bodies died in that flood, and now they are the spirits who are suffering in judgment. But their life on earth was back in the days of Noah. It was then that they rejected the offer of salvation to come into the ark. And now they're in prison. So the, the only real question here is, is the tense there of when is what happening? And we know clearly by all those timestamps, what happened was they rejected righteousness, they rejected truth, they did not exercise faith and enter the ark back in the days of Noah when they lived as human beings with bodies and spirits on earth. But those bodies died, and now their spirits are in prison. So the most helpful way to read the passage is to just look at verse 19 and see that he went and proclaimed to those spirits now in prison, who formerly did not obey. We don't need to formerly if, if we're not talking about them back then. But that's what we're speaking of. I suppose we could say Peter's language of spirits in prison is kind of an anachronism. It's like kind of mixing our time a little bit. But we do this in English as well. Peter's saying that Christ preached to the spirits in prison, we would say now in prison, when they disobeyed is common in our language as well. There are, there are just a couple people in this room who could say, I knew Pastor Adam when he was in high school. And none of you would think, wow, I didn't know Adam was a pastor in high school. Right? So we kind of, we kind of assume we know what we're talking about. We're calling Pastor Adam, Pastor Adam, because that's the status now of who we're speaking, spirits in prison. But what we're actually talking about is, is their past, something they did before. So this text is often used to even say, you know, that perhaps Christ, after he died on the cross and maybe before he went to heaven, and some would say after he went to heaven, went to hell and he preached to those spirits either a second opportunity to be saved because he preached and usually preaching is the gospel. Uh, others say he announced his victory. Um, so there's other views of interpreting this, but it, it, it sends us down a path that nothing else in the scriptures confirms or, or even really hints at. If we think of it in the simplest level, Peter is simply saying, spirits now in prison are those who are alive in Noah's day. And he wants to use Noah as an example, an illustration to help us understand that even though we suffer a little in this life, Christ will lead us safely home. Two texts echo this idea of this preaching in Noah's day. Two texts from Peter. The first is back in chapter 1. When in describing our great salvation in verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, to the prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, 
we're clear then that in the prophets of old, the Spirit of Christ was sent to proclaim a mysterious message that would take full shape later on when Christ came. What I want us to note there is that it was the Spirit in them that was preaching. The second text that helps us think this way about our passage, which seems troubling, is 2 Peter chapter 2, where there Peter again references Noah. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald, and that's the same word in our text for preaching, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That preaching, according to 1 Peter 1, is by the Spirit of God. Our text is kind of right in the middle of both of those. And it simply says that Christ, by the Spirit, was there in the prophets preaching a message, a message of righteousness. Here's the point of Peter referencing Noah. You can see the parallel between Noah's day and Peter's day. And by implication, we could say our day. Because as we hear the message to the church that Peter was giving, we're seeking to apply it now to our culture 2,000 years later, and we're going to see some similarities. But at the very least, let the mystery of what is all this talk about Noah fall away because we're going to see Peter was just using Noah as an example. What's the parallel? First, there is a righteous minority. Noah was a pilgrim, an exile. He was the outcast, the minority. Noah and seven other souls are spared. Everyone else disobeyed, it says, rejected the message refused to believe. So it's a righteous minority, number two, in hostile surroundings. For 120 years, we're told, Noah was a herald of righteousness, and not one single person agreed with him other than his family. So no, no converts. Nobody was won over by his defense of the hope that was in him. But he was faithful in declaring that hope that righteousness in hostile surroundings. Much like Peter's audience that was being reviled and slandered for what they stood for, so did Noah. And so it's an illustration that makes our point. A righteous minority in hostile surroundings with a gospel hope. Peter has just told the church, be ready always to give an answer, a defense a reason for the hope that is in you. He could have just said, be like good old Noah and go about doing what God's called you to do, living out hope, proclaiming a message of righteousness found only in Christ. A righteous minority in hostile surroundings with a gospel hope and a sure salvation. Noah was safe in the ark. Peter's point to us is we are safe in Christ. Hence the question of verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you're on the Lord's side? The illustration of Noah helps us to understand our big idea that though we may suffer for doing good, for Noah in the long Lives that they lived back then, it was 120 years of opposition, reviling, slander, and not one single person pausing to kind of maybe agree with him. And we think we have it bad. Peter says, think of that. And now hear the message that, yes, you're a pilgrim. You're an exile. You feel like the minority. And you feel like you're facing hostility but yours is the task of proclaiming hope because you have a sure salvation. Christ will lead you safely home. Did he not take care of Noah? So take heart. And that safely home idea leads us to our third reflection because the leading safely 
in Noah's case meant he entered the ark, the door was shut, and he endured the waters of God's judgment and came out on the other side safely. And that sends Peter into a, a third reflection that helps us think of the theme. And remember, while we're going to talk baptism, that's not what Peter's main premise is. He's just explaining how here's another reflection that reminds us we may suffer for doing good, but Christ will lead us safely home. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, first, let's be clear that salvation is only possible by faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone would boast. So there's nothing that we do to check off a box and say, well, I have to have faith in Christ, but I also have to do this, and then I'll have salvation. Case in point, the thief on the cross exercises faith in Christ, and he is immediately granted everlasting life. Baptism was not a requirement for him to know that he would be with Christ in paradise. And to be clear, even from Peter's teaching, as he began his letter, after a brief introduction, he says in chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Rooted in God's mercy and his divine initiative, he has given us new life so that we could have a hope, a living hope. Your faith is rooted in your new life that comes to you by God's mercy. Peter recognizes baptism is not a part of the equation for sinners being made right with the holy God. That equation is repentance and faith, kind of a two-sided coin. In my turning from sin... I'm turning to Christ, and that whole turning is spurred on by new life in Christ, by the Spirit of God, as we see in John chapter 3. So, all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, say that the way sinners are made right with God is by faith. That is how we are declared righteous. Getting baptized in water does not get anyone to heaven. Therefore, we know Peter is not saying if you merely get baptized or go through any other ritual of the church, you go to heaven. Peter is not saying that. Second, we can say that even this text demonstrates that faith leads to baptism. Faith saves, not baptism. And even though the words that we're looking at kind of cause us some alarm, baptism now saves you, I will submit to you that three phrases in this very passage show us that salvation is by faith. Number one, the phrase corresponds to. Baptism which corresponds to this. There's something about baptism that is defined by what was just told us. And what was it that we were just told? We were told that Noah prepared an ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. They were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to bringing you safely through water, saves you. So whatever baptism reminds us of being safely brought through the water of God's judgment will be an indication of salvation. It would have been nice or perhaps helpful, less alarming, if they had been consistent in translating the word saved in this text. And maybe the text before you does. 
in verse 20, as the verse comes to an end, they were brought safely through. Safely is the word saved that shows up in the very next verse. I think if we had read that Noah was saved through water and your baptism corresponds to that, we wouldn't feel the alarm. But we just hear he was brought safely through water and we think, well, of course, he was in the ark. Our minds aren't thinking he was saved through water. And that's that word at verse, the end of verse 20. Saved with the prefix through. So how is Noah saved through water? Because if we can answer that question, we understand how baptism now saves us. So how is Noah saved through water? Just as Noah was saved from God's judgment in the ark, so we are saved by, from God's judgment in Christ. But what about the water? Well, Noah was not saved because a flood covered the earth. He's saved through water, but it's not saying he was saved because his boat floated on the water. It's not saying he was saved because the water subsided and his boat landed on a mountain and he survived there and then the water subsided and, and he came out of the ark. It's really not saying anything about what the water can do. The water is just making manifest the reality of salvation. Salvation, Noah was brought safely, he was saved. How do we see that? We see it by him surviving the water of God's judgment. Hence, the water revealed salvation. The water made salvation evident. The water was the context of salvation. Peter just says he was saved through water. But what saved Noah? It was faith to say, I will go into the ark. When God said, this is my provision for your salvation, and they went into the ark, God closes the door, and then Peter summarizes with a general word for saved, they were saved through the water. But the actual means of their salvation is the ark of safety. Our baptism, as long as it pictures an ark of safety and corresponds to Noah's salvation, our baptism also saves us through water. Why, why are we baptized in water? Whether that's immersion in some places or pouring or sprinkling, why water? Why not sprinkle them with flour or something else? It's because the water is a picture of God's judgment. Why is it such a comfort when the prophet said, if you pass through the water, I will be with you. When you walk through the floods, they will not overwhelm you. It's because water would be that picture of judgment. So when we are baptized in water, in a baptismal tank, outside, inside, in a creek, in a lake, wherever baptisms would be held, that water and plunging into the water is that picture of going through the water of God's judgment, but coming out the other side safe. Just like Noah did. Saved through water. Yes, in a general sense. And we're saved through baptism. Yes, in the sense that we know what it's picturing. The waters of God's judgment. It's a baptism that corresponds to Noah's salvation. So was Noah saved by water? No, he was saved by entering the ark by faith. And are you saved by baptism? No, but it shows that you're saying you believe that Christ is the ark of your eternal safety. Baptism doesn't save you, but the water of baptism will reveal that you believe Christ is the ark of safety. Another phrase. As soon as Peter says the words, this kind of baptism that Noah was saved by, you can be saved by, he immediately qualifies that statement to correct a wrongful thinking. 
So the first words out of his mouth after baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, is a negative. Not as, like, no, 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 don't think that. Not as, he says, a removal of dirt from the body. That, that is at its bare minimum the, the meaning of the word baptize. Because they, they would baptize their kitchen dishes. It wasn't a ritual. It was literally washing them in water to get them clean. So the next time your dishwasher's not working, or if you don't have one, you wash your dishes in the sink, you're, you're baptizing them when you dip them in there. When you turn the faucet on and rinse off all the soap, that, that too would be counted baptism because pouring was the meaning of the Old Testament word. That, that use of water washed away the filth. That word then was, was enhanced in our identification with Christ because by the blood of Christ, we are cleansed from sin. And that baptism in water is helping us picture that cleansing. It's another picture of that water. Peter's point is this. When you think of that word baptism and it's effectual washing, don't think that when I say baptism saves you, I'm saying baptism washes away your sin. It has no inherent ability to cleanse you from unrighteousness. Only the blood of Christ does that. So he immediately corrects with that phrase, not as a washing. We are not saying when you are baptized that you are washed from your sin. Some will say that. Some denominations, some churches will say that. Peter is not saying that, and he wants to be very clear about it. This isn't a work that you do or a ritual that is performed that finally cleanses you from sin. No, Christ accomplishes that. This baptism in water may picture that, but it is not effectual to wash away sin. And the final phrase then is the corrective. Following the negative is the positive, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. This word for appeal could also mean a pledge. So there's some interpretive question. Is it a pledge to God now that having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, I will live this clear conscience, godly life? Or is it an appeal to God, like the agreement, the understanding that, yes, if Christ has washed me from sin, then, Lord, I'm appealing to that work of Christ for a clean conscience. Because he rose from the dead, I can be righteous. So the but as is an expression of faith. It is, it is counting on God through the work of Christ and the confirmation of his resurrection to give me a clean conscience. How can I be washed clean? How can I be done with the sin that has ruined my life? Well, I come to faith in Christ, I repent of sin and I'm washed. How can I as a child of God be done with that anger that got the best of me this week or that, that lust or that covetousness or that fear? I come back to the resurrected Christ, the righteous who suffered for the unrighteous to bring us to God, and all of that was confirmed in his resurrection. It's true, the gospel works. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins because of Christ. As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each of these three phrases show us what we probably already knew, Peter isn't saying there are two ways to be saved. You can repent and believe, or you can be baptized. He's saying baptism is certainly connected to your repentance and faith. But here's how. Baptism proclaims our union with Christ. There could be some in other denominations who will baptize their children. And if they're in the realm of orthodoxy, they're not saying it's for salvation but they would 
say exactly what we have on our notes here, that baptism is proclaiming this identity with Christ. It is this union with Christ. They are brought into the covenant promises of Christ. We might say with a stronger emphasis on the believing faith than baptism, but we will find agreement with believers who are studying the scriptures like we are and trying to figure this out on this point, that baptism means something about look at Christ. He's the answer. Any church that would say baptism saves or forgives sins has erred from the teaching of Scripture. But those Christians who may differ from how you see it on baptism, be it clearly a sign for believers or even for the unbelieving child to be identified with Christ, we can work with that. That's biblical, the union with Christ, the identity with Christ. Baptism doesn't provide salvation. It pictures the salvation that we must have through Christ. And as we've already seen, that means we're identifying with Christ by faith for righteousness that can be ours. We're identifying with Christ in his death so that his death is my death so that his resurrection is my resurrection, so that ultimately his exaltation in part is my exaltation. I won't sit on the throne, so to speak, in the place of Christ, but Ephesians says we are with Christ in heavenly places, seated there. We're on his side around his throne, in his peace, in his victory, in his rest. Romans 6, we are buried in the likeness of his death. We are raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. We are in Christ. That's Peter's point. As a pilgrim, you've laid down your life and you're saying, I am hidden in Christ. But that means I might have to suffer at times even for doing good. And Peter's point is, now in this reflection on baptism, Yes, though you may suffer for doing good, Christ, in whom you are united, will lead you safely home. In baptism, you pass through the water of judgment, but you are safe in the ark of Christ. He'll get you safely home. Admittedly, this text has some nuance to it. But we're not talking about some bizarre text and mysterious spirits. We're not talking about just an old story from long ago and a famous ark that was built. We're not really even talking about baptism as our focus. Peter is using each of those little asides to remind us that it really is true and you should believe it, that it's better to suffer for doing good. Because if you're on Christ's side, if you're identified with him, if your pilgrimage means you're following Jesus, then you have this guarantee. Christ will lead you safely home. It is better to suffer for doing good than to be an evildoer. Because yours is the promise, Christ will lead you home. It's better to suffer for doing good because you know Christ also suffered for doing good. And his good doing was your eternal salvation. It is better to suffer for doing good. It really is. Consider how every emotion that Noah could muster would have said it is better to suffer for doing good than to be an evildoer when that door was closed and the waters began to rise. You don't think Noah was filled with Vindication, elation, compassion, as people demanded or begged to be led into the ark. You see, Peter says, Noah would tell you the same thing, pilgrim. It is better to suffer for doing good and belong to Christ than to be an evildoer. It is better to be united with him to be identified with him so that yours is the promise that he will lead you safely home. So I close with two questions. Number one, have you entered the ark? 
Have you entered the ark? Our verse in 17 is, it is better to suffer for doing good than to be an evildoer. So are you on the Lord's side? Have you put faith in Christ so that now your life is defined by the doing good? The Spirit of God is working that fruit of righteousness in you. Have you by faith entered the ark of safety who is Jesus Christ? It's your only hope of passing safely through the waters of God's judgment all the way home. Second, if you are trusting in Christ to lead you safely home, then what are you afraid of? Our text last week told us not to be troubled or fearful. So why are you so unsettled? Why the doubt? Why the fear? If God is for you, who can be against you? In Peter's text, who is there to harm you? Take heart, brothers and sisters. Christ is promising to lead us safely home. You'll get there. And when you do, it will be worth it all. It is better, my friends, to suffer for doing good than to be an evildoer. So rejoice this morning if Christ has made you his own. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, our ark of safety, our salvation. Though we might feel like pilgrims, remind us that life is short, that heaven is near, our salvation is sure. Thank you for this sufficient work of Christ as it unfolds in this text. May we leave here with a clarity that trusting in Christ is worth it, with faith that he will lead us safely home, that he will bring us to you, our Father, and to the fullness of joy in your presence. And so we say yet again, hallelujah, what a Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace be with you as you go.